Well, good morning. Thank you. I ask you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish up the first portion in Ephesians chapter 1. But I'm going to begin with a question by our Lord's half-brother, James. He gives uh, two questions, asks two questions, and provides two responses. So I want, you to, I want you to listen to these. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Those are, those are the two options that are presented to the believer as, as we travel the changing landscapes of life. Are you suffering? And some of you are suffering. There's different kinds of suffering, but every suffering has basically two characteristics. It has intensity and duration. Right? So you can have a light and short suffering. Those are the best kind, <laughs> if you have to choose. You can have a, a long and light suffering. Or you can have a short, intense suffering, or you can have, and this is the most difficult, a long and intense suffering. Are you suffering? James says, pray. By that, he does not mean a mechanical religious exercise, but he means, are you hurting? Are you deeply suffering? Draw near to God in close communication with Him. That is one of the great blessings that the Father has given to you in your suffering. Maybe the very reason He's designed some of it is to actually deliver you from formal mechanics and drawing near to Him in prayer. Johnny Erickson Tata was an athletic teenager. When she was 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay but misjudged the depth of the water. Her spinal cord was severed and she became paralyzed from the shoulders down. I remember as a young boy at First Baptist Church in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, where at the time I felt like my parents were dragging me to. Um, but that morning stands out in my mind because of the charcoal drawings that were on display that she had done with her teeth. I remember as a young boy that making an impression on me. In 2017, it was the 50th anniversary of her accident, and she wrote this, quote, Recently, I was at my desk writing to Tommy, a 17-year-old boy who just broke his neck body surfing off the Jersey Shore. He's now a quadriplegic. He will live the rest of his life in a wheelchair without use of his hands or legs. When it comes to life-altering injuries, quadriplegia is catastrophic. She continues, Halfway through my letter describing several hurdles Tommy should expect in rehab, I stopped. I felt utterly overwhelmed thinking of all that lies ahead for him. I've been there. And even though half a century has passed, I can still taste the anguish. Like Tommy, I was once the 17-year-old who wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes. As well as prayer, heaven-minded friends, 
and the deep study of God's word all combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. Johnny also said, whatever troubles are weighing you down are not chains. They are featherweight when compared to the glory yet to come. With a sweep of a prayer and the praise of a child's heart, God can strip away any cobweb. Prayer and praise. Is any among you suffering? James asks. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him give praise to God. Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14 is all about praise. And Ephesians 1 15 to 23 is all about prayer. Appropriate praise precedes or is a necessary part of biblical prayer. And here's the truth. If we are not confident in God's character in the midst of suffering, we will not turn to him in prayerful trust. Knowing who God really is, is a component of calling out to him in dependent, prayerful trust. Now, don't miss the theological building blocks in in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Uh, The focus is on all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've looked at this in the weeks past. There's a threefold perspective of time, which is interesting, of eternity past, of historical past, the Ephesians present, and really our present, and then eternity future. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternity past, present, eternity future. And then there is this incredible theology of worship. This is what worship looks like when people gather and sing praises. So here are the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. That God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here they are. There's three in this section. We are chosen for adoption by the Father. We are redeemed for unity by the Son. And we are sealed for inheritance by the Spirit. Now, don't miss the piling up of phrases. I want you to look at this. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. And these phrases are going to show to you and really display, put on showcase, God's initiating grace. Don't miss these. Because this is part of praise. This is part of what worship looks like. Chapter 1, verse 5. He chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Continue in verse 5. He predestined us according to what? This is the only answer we're provided. It's not that he looked forward and saw something and he responded. He predestined us according to the good pleasure of his will. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it mentions this twice. His grace. His grace. Look at verse 9. His will. His good pleasure. Look at verse 11. His purpose. His will. God's initiating grace. But don't miss this either. Our response is essential. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. You trusted. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. You heard. You believed. And we're not there yet. We'll get into this next week, Lord willing. Verse 15. Your faith. Can you feel the tension? And folks, we need to keep, we need to maintain that tension. So if you don't completely understand this, which you don't, if you do, I'm concerned. 
If you don't completely understand this, praise God for His glorious grace. And if you don't, if you're not able to fully explain it, which you can't, praise God for His glorious grace. So, biblicists will maintain the tension between these two things. Human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. And like a tension bridge, if you start snapping the cables through human logic, the integrity of the bridge is compromised. Maintain that responsibility. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life. But we have a glimpse into it by way of divine revelation. So we accept it, we submit to it, and as we'll see three times in the refrain in Ephesians 1, we will say, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. So really quick, the spiritual benefit from pre-creation eternity. One application. Look at verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. One practical application of God choosing us in Christ before He even said, let there be light, is this. Humility. God's choosing should nurture humility and eliminate boasting. If a high school player is awarded the offensive or defensive game ball, which we've watched this season uh, with Heritage High School, that player can actually take credit for receiving the game ball. I've seen it. The coaches will hold it up and they'll say why this individual is receiving it. He throws it at them. They catch it and everybody cheers for him, right? Because he had, he had an exceptional game where among all the other players, he received the game ball. But there is no boasting if someone gives you a gift. That would not only be awkward, but embarrassing to watch, wouldn't it? Next week during our members meeting, uh, Sean will hand out a few free books. He, he really likes this part. He's, he's actually kind of a book geek about this. And he's already talking about which books he wants to hand out and gift to the membership. And the books aren't free, but we hand them out as free. Now, if someone raises their hand next Sunday and wants that particular book, right? Yes. And he walks up and hands it to them. And all of a sudden that person stands up and says, I knew it. I deserved that book. I have been an awesome Christian. See, I told you, awkward and embarrassing. Right? We, we don't do that with a gift. God's grace is a gift. It nurtures humility. It annihilates boasting. Nobody says, I'm here because of my righteousness or my goodness. Turn with me to Romans 3.23. That verse by itself is familiar, but I want us to read a little farther. Hold your place in Ephesians 1 and turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're talking about God's grace, His forgiveness as a gift that annihilates all pride, boasting, and claims of self-righteousness. This is exactly what Paul taught in his letter to another church, to the believers in Rome. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, say it with me, as a gift. What does that gift look like? Through the redemption, same word we're seeing in Ephesians 1, that is in, same terminology, Christ Jesus. Okay? Look at, go down a little bit where it says it was to show 
His righteousness, God's righteousness, at the present time so that we might be, so that He might be, listen to this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's that tension again. Look at verse 27. It's a question. Then what becomes of boasting? What does he say? It is excluded. By what kind of law? I kept the law good enough, so I earned this? No, that's excluded. There's no boasting. By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. No one can brag about their own contribution to salvation. Boasting is excluded. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. So, God's work in pre-creation eternity should lead us to humble gratitude and holy living. That's what humility leads towards. Holy living. That's what uh, Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 5 says. That we should live holy and without blame before Him. And we do that not so other people see us primarily. We do that for the praise of His grace. We constantly keep turning, turning the attention back to God. Okay, that's the spiritual blessing from pre-creation eternity. Let's review our blessing from past history. And by I mean that, it actually dovetails very nicely with the passage that Steve read for us this morning, that in the fullness of time, when everything was just as God wanted it to be, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That means He made Himself accountable to God's righteous laws, made under the law. Why? To redeem us. Same word we see in Ephesians 1, to redeem us from the law. Okay. Look at chapter 1, verse 4, last two words. The spiritual benefit from past history. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him, in Christ, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. That's the past history. That's a specific event. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So here's, here's what's happening here. The Father has included us in His Son's inheritance, or in a sense, in His Son's last will and testament. I received a call just a couple days ago by a friend asking a question about a detail in His will that needs to be updated. It's an important document, and He had a very important request in the light of Him having to do this after a tragedy. Do you know that the Father made it possible for you to share in the Son's inheritance? Ephesians 1 says we are blessed in the Beloved, in the One that the Father loves, in His only begotten Son we are blessed. And it's almost like Jesus wrote us into His will, died so that the will would be in force, rose from the dead to be our advocate lawyer to make sure that the stipulations he put in his will would be carried out. 1 John 2, 1-2. The Apostle John uses both legal and family language. Listen to this. My little children. There's that family language. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, by the way, that's not permission, but hope in failure. If anyone does sin... Listen to what he says. We have an advocate with the Father, a lawyer with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This family language and this legal language. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person. In this, in this case, it's God and being reconciled to him. The wrath is settled and now you can approach him as friends, as family. So look at chapter 1, verse 5 in Ephesians. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Any questions come to your mind when you read that? He predestined all believers for adoption to himself as what? Sons. Where are the daughters? Why sons and not daughters? And I've seen, as I've read commentaries, people will add sons and daughters. And I disagree with that addition. Not, not, not because I am, you know, superly dominant gender specific, but in this case, we need to be because of what the original readership of this letter would have understood about inheritance rights. And he's talking about inheritance. And the inheritance went to who? Sons. So in this case, daughters, believing daughters, you want to be a son that guarantees you the inheritance. It matters. It doesn't matter as far as eternal distinctions go. For example, Paul wrote this same author. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. He said this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, no superior eternal ethnic dis- distinction. There is neither slave nor free. There's no superior eternal social distinction. There is neither male nor female. No superior eternal gender distinction. And he's, going to an- and he's going to answer the question, why is that the case that there is absolutely really no distinctions with an eternal view? Here it is. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. But when it comes to the inheritance, you want to be what? You want to be a son. And that means this, that all of our young boys and girls here who have, have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior are Sons in Christ with a rightful inheritance. And all of our men and women who have placed faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are sons in Jesus Christ because of the inheritance. Skeptics often ask why God, if he is sovereign and all-knowing, went ahead with creation knowing that humanity would make a choice to sin and then be placed under a curse? It's a good question. One answer is this, that God in, if if you take the wording of verse 8 of chapter 1, God in his wisdom and insight predetermined believers for a higher dignity that was not given at creation. The fall did not take God by surprise. Everything that happens after the fall is not his knee-jerk, celestial knee-jerk response to the fall. He has been planning this all along. It's fulfilling his perfect plan. This is what his plan was all along. God intended to make us true sons to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is what sonship brings. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It brings redemption. 
That means God will receive a kind of glory for delivering us by a payment price that he could not have received if it didn't happen this way. The payment price is clearly stated in in chapter 1, verse 7. It is through Christ's blood, and the result of the payment price is indicated the forgiveness of our trespasses. That indicates what we've been delivered from. For the wages of sin is death, but God stepped in and delivered us from that with a sacrifice. Now, sonship also brings responsibility, as Paul will touch on later in Ephesians 5, verse 1. He says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, there's a phrase that connects the blessing and the responsibility to a larger purpose. And that brings us to the spiritual benefit in the future. Go down to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, it is a plan for the fullness of time, right? Not just here and now, not just in the past, but the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Okay, so quick application. History is neither meaningless nor purposeless. And we are, we are in the succession of events and moments of a history right now. Everything you did this morning in preparation to get here is rightfully called now history. So you're living history. And it's not without purpose and it's not without meaning. That means God has a plan individually for each of us for the fullness of times. This is what he's doing. He's making all things new. And everything is moving towards a time when it will will culminate in an appropriate submission to Jesus Christ, the King. We saw that in Psalm 2. Worship the King. Kiss the King while there is time, lest he be angry with you. God's justice will be restored everywhere. That, That means this. Evil people are not getting away with evil and faithful believers have not missed their reward. All of this is happening in light of the fullness of time. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 15. Talking about Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So for the, for the evildoer... And for the righteous person, it is only a matter of time until all this comes in the fullness of time under the unity of Christ's authority. Now, we have to understand it's not just any kind of unity, but a unity in Christ and under his rule. And where is that supposed to be on display right now? Right here in the church. How we interact with each other, how we submit to God's word how we worship and adore Him, what we make top-shelf priority and middle-shelf semi-priority and bottom-shelf preferences. We display God's glory through the submission of Christ, who is the head of the church, right here. We live this out because, because that's what Ephesians is really all about. Look at verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, okay, in Christ... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, what does this entail? 
So if you go back to God's choice before the foundation of the world, let me ask, let me ask you a question. Why is it that you have heard the gospel so many times? You own a copy of the scriptures in your own language. And you are hearing the gospel again right now this morning. You've heard it probably so many times you can't even count how many times you have heard the good news of God's love and him sending his only begotten son and him loving you and his willingness to forgive you as a gift of grace. Why are you hearing that again? And there are people in Somalia that have never heard that a single time. Or there are people in the Himalayas of Nepal that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, not even as a swear word. They've just never heard of him. Why is that? And this, this is, I'm trying to turn your affections to rejoice in what we saw in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Do you know why you're hearing it again? Because God is allowing you to hear it again. God has chosen for you to hear the gospel over and over and over again. He preordained it. He predetermined it that you would hear it. Look at verse 12. He says this to the Ephesians. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jews, Paul's, Paul's representative of the Jews, but he's now an apostle to the Gentiles, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, Gentiles, the Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. God is letting you hear that good news rehearsed in your mind and in your heart over and over and over again. Matter of fact, Paul knows that that's a necessary component of becoming a believer because he'll work through a logical sequence of questions in Romans chapter 10. Just listen to what he says to the, to the Roman church. He says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Okay, we just saw that in Ephesians 1. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. You believe that? Okay, now, now I'm going to try to draw your affections out of Ephesians 1 verse 4 again. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you believe that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? You better, it's in the Bible. Right? It's right there in Romans. But then, then Paul's going to ask a sequence of logical questions. He says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Well, they, they can't. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Well, they can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They can't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? They can't. And yet here we are this morning hearing the gospel rehearsed once again out of Ephesians. The blessing of eternity past, the blessing of historical past in Christ, the blessing of, if you would, historical present, which as soon as I say the word, it's past, right? Track with me here. Time is an amazing thing. Um, you're hearing it again in historical present, the gospel. But now I want you to see the spiritual benefit for Christians right now. And this is where we're going to end. God did something because he allowed you to hear the gospel. And yes, you believed and he saved you by his grace. Look at verse 13. In him, you also Gentiles 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you truly did believe. I hope you truly believed. And when you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So several, several amazing things are revealed in this section that I want, I want us all to get for our encouragement. And not just our encouragement, but if you truly grasp them, this is what it's going to do. It's going to fuel praise. And just like the refrain three different times, you're going to respond to these truths to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory. Okay. First, believers are, look at this, note this, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal, the Romans would understand this, as a mark of ownership and protection. They often, they often branded cattle and slaves with a mark or a seal. Now, that's not encouraging. But it helps us understand the word. That when, when, when God is allowing Paul to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chooses a word that communicates this, ownership and protection. If that, if that cow wandered off, was clearly marked that it belonged to an owner. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Seals were also used in the ancient world, much like they are used today. Uh, when we first went to Kenya back in 2000, we shipped a 20-foot container. And before it left the States out of the port, they would put all kinds of locks and seals on it that they could tell if it had been tampered with. And when it arrived in Mombasa and then came up on the railway or truck all the way up to Nairobi and the nightmare of the clearing agents there, all the seals were intact. And the only people that were allowed to open them were the officials, but with the owner present. And they would and they would cut them and then open up and you had to unload, at least in Nairobi, we had to unload all the contents and they had to make sure we weren't bringing any contraband in. And then we had to reload everything and then pay for the transport to get the container where we needed it again. So you have ownership and now you have what? Security and protection. That's what a seal does. Authenticity, ownership, protection. Do you know that God has sealed you if you're a believer? He owns you in, in, a, in a beautiful sense. He guards you. He protects you. And the Holy Spirit is himself that seal. Matter of fact, Paul will say this in Romans, that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even his child. Every child has the Holy Spirit of God. Second, look at the other word that Paul uses. He uses the word guarantee in verse 14. And that is a word used at the time for legal and commercial transactions, a guarantee. We would understand it more like this. Suppose I were to buy a vehicle from you for $8,000, and that's what it's valued at, and we might agree that I would pay the first $1,000 as a what? A down payment, right? As a guarantee that you will get the full payment at a later date agreed upon. The Spirit is the down payment. You don't have everything you're going to get yet, right? That's why inheritance typically is future. But God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit and has guaranteed that, that you are experiencing something now that is only a small taste 
of what you're going to experience for all eternity. Maybe we would understand this better as the idea of an engagement ring. All right, what is, what is he saying to her when he presents this ring, this jewelry of worth? Or sometimes not of, of worth, the worth is in what it represents. What is he saying? Would you marry me? And hopefully, if the situation's right, she says what? Yes. And then he presents to her a guarantee. I, I said in this moment, because you agreed, I'm going to take you to be my wife and I'm going to fulfill that promise. God never breaks an engagement. He is giving you his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee, as a seal. And he is he is true to come back and fulfill everything that he has promised. Listen to Romans 8, chapter 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me just ask you that this morning. Does God's Holy Spirit confirm with your spirit that you are his child? Does the Spirit of God inside of you provide evidence that you're not just a cultural Christian? You're not just a Christian because you're not Muslim or Hindu. You truly are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that down payment has been given to you. And the Holy Spirit within you testifies. That's what the Scripture says. Testifies. It bears witness. Another legal term. That you are God's child. There's that legal and that family terms combined again. Don't miss those. The third thing to note here, we don't have the full inheritance yet. Look at the words, until we acquire possession of it. What difference does knowing you are to receive God's inheritance in full make in your life today? I wrote down a few things that it should do. It should break the iron grip of greed. Because the inheritance that is waiting for us is staggering. It should eliminate materialism. It should provide hope. And it should remove discontentment. Here we are as believers, and God has shown us that everything that is happening, every small detail in our life, every hurt, every disappointment, every joy, every celebration, every grief, all of that is moving towards somewhere in the future. And that provides hope for the believer. I want you to note two different phrases, four times each, as we move towards singing a hymn of response together. First, I want you to notice this phrase, according to his will. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's an apostle by what? By the will of God. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in love God predestined us for adoption according to what? The purpose of His will. Look at verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of His will. How? Or in line with what? According to His purpose. Third time, according to His purpose, by His will, according to His purpose. Look at verse 11. We have, an, we have obtained an inheritance 
having predestined according to what? According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. That means this. God is right now, through the mundane and the complex, the hurts and the joys, the disappointments, the celebrations, he is right now, without missing a single detail, accomplishing his great plan. The history of the world is not haphazard. Tomorrow's events are neither unknown nor out of God's control. You are not a random accident and your life is not pointless. Second, I want you to notice this phrase, to the praise of his glory. It is a refrain, almost like we sing in a song where we repeat the chorus, and it is celebrating the work of the the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. I want you to note this again, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And verse 14, to the praise of of his glory. I'm going to invite our music team forward. I'm going to read you one more quote by Johnny Erickson Tata. She said this, Real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promises, and in leaning on him and resting in him As the sovereign who knows what he is doing and is doing all things well. Let's pray and then we will sing together.